Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the London School of Economics and Political Science. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of LSE. We're here today to welcome Akim Steiner, who's the head of the UNDP. UNDP is the UN's largest agency, present in 170 countries, and tasked with the huge challenge of accelerating progress toward Agenda 2030 and the Sustainable Development Goals. UNDP's strategic plan for the next three years describes how it will work with partners using its local experience combined with a global network to develop solutions in areas such as poverty and inequality, environment, energy, resilience and gender equality through innovations like digitalization, strategic innovations and development financing. The plan says quite rightly, development challenges are dynamic interconnected puzzles of multidimensional risks that require systemic solutions. Multilateral cooperation is vital in addressing these shared challenges that cross boundaries of geography and time. Now, recent years have seen multilateralism challenged And yet we face a global pandemic and a climate crisis that have actually increased the urgency of mobilizing diverse interests and expertise, including from business and the private sector to address them. Leading companies and investors are already engaged in tackling social problems, viewing risk as more than just a financial risk and understanding that sustainability, resilience and stability are essential to prosperity. In some areas, the business community is ahead of governments in tackling these issues. Now, the UN Business and Human Security Initiative at LSE Ideas has been working with UN agencies, including UNDP, since 2018, providing research and guidance to help businesses set up partnerships with government and communities to improve human security at a local level. The program's report to the UN Secretary General General, entitled Maximizing Business Contributions to Sustainable Development and Positive Peace, a Human Security Approach, is published this week. It sets out the ways that the private sector can go further to create positive impacts, deliver the SDGs, and respond to changes in the social expectations on business. Now, today, we are very fortunate and delighted to have UNDP Administrator Akim Steiner at LSE. He became the UN Administrator in June 2017, and the UN General Assembly confirmed his appointment following his nomination by Antonio Guterres. And in April 21, he's been confirmed for a second four-year term. Akim Steiner is also the vice chair of the UN Sustainable Development Group, which brings together 40 entities of the UN system to support sustainable development. And before that, over three, over nearly three decades, he's been a global leader on sustainable development, climate resistance, resilience, and international cooperation. Before uh, joining UNDP, he was director of the Oxford Martin School and a professorial fellow at Balliol College at the University of Oxford. He also served in many roles across the UN system, including heading UN in the UN Environment Program from 2006 to 2016. He graduated with PPE from Worcester College, Oxford, and holds an MA from SOAS in London. 
So we're very delighted to welcome Akim uh, to launch our public event series for 2022 with this important issue. He will speak for about 20 minutes. Uh, I'll ask him a couple of questions, but very much encourage the audience to use the Q&A function to ask questions that are interested to you. Um, and for those users on Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag UNDP. The event will be recorded and made available as a podcast afterwards. So with that, let me turn uh, with a very warm welcome to Akim Steiner. Thank you very much, Minush, and thank you for the honor and the pleasure to begin the year 2022 with such a, a wonderful platform on which to address issues that you have just laid out at a moment in time when I think all of us can feel that heavy weight of a, of a world struggling with itself and trying to figure out how things are going to move forward. And um, I certainly appreciate the opportunity to share some of our thinking um, leading the UN's development program uh, allows me in, in many ways to see simultaneously the, both the challenges that differ from country to country, but also the responses across so many different societies. And it's something that I think for those of us who have the opportunity to work internationally and to uh, also observe from many different vantage points what is happening to our world very quickly leads us to, I think, that, that very simple acknowledgement that we do live in troubled times. I think, Minush, with your own book, um, What We Owe Each Other, you, you um, honed in on this notion of social contracts, for instance, which we are observing across the world as being under strain. Uh, the triggers for when you know, societies begin to uh, perhaps fall apart when that social contract is being questioned may be different, but there is no doubt that even preceding this pandemic, we were observing across the world, and not just wealthier or poorer countries, that was not the differentiator, but incre increasingly societies across the globe not being really um, satisfied with what the pathways that lay before them were really presenting. As a development program, I often like to use this narrative of development choices because this is what ultimately uh, we as stakeholders in our communities, in our societies, in our nations, are debating what kind of development choices, what kind of futures are we seeking? And the reality is, as we begin 2022, we are living in very troubled times. Not only do we have this pandemic that continues to um, affect us very differently, but affect us all. And perhaps almost without precedent, there is a synchronicity about something happening to us right now that perhaps might also begin to reinforce that notion that we truly are one human family living on this planet, not separately from one another, but affected by each other and ultimately either enabled to act on things that need to change or facing failure. Um, it's not just the pandemic, it's climate change. It's um, the pervasive phenomenon of inequality and the pandemic has just made it worse again. A hundred million more people have fallen into extreme poverty. Uh, the last year has seen record numbers of people displaced as either refugees or internally displaced people, the highest number since we have kept records. Um, we have crisis, we have conflicts, we have tensions. And in essence, we are as citizens, um, as perhaps people who work in the public sector, leaders in government, uh, but also business leaders and people who either run businesses or work in the private sector, we are confronted by a moment in time where very significant choices are called for. 
indeed much of what I will speak to um, in the next 20 minutes has really to do with these choices and to try and home in on the fact that we are not talking about incremental changes anymore. UNDP chose in 2020 to refocus its human development report around the notion of the next frontier and human development in the Anthropocene. To those of you who may not be familiar with the term Anthropocene, it is um, a term that has increasingly begun to uh, try to pick up on this geological age notion on the one hand, but also to recognize that we live in a period of time where humans really have become the dominant force on the planet. Our collective impact is literally changing uh, the way this planet functions in the atmosphere and the biosphere and realizing quite how significant the implications of human choices today are is part of also redefining the way that we um, articulate the choices that we need to make and the ability to actually do so together. And um, whether you look at it through the lens of the Anthropocene, which in a sense takes that geological, physical view of the human footprint, if you take the focus that you took, Minoush, with social contracts, or whether we just recognize the symptoms of societies under stress, we live in an era of immense disruption of uh, growing anger, um, which was also, I think, the trigger that you originally picked when you looked at social contracts. And we are also in an age of growing, exponentially growing uncertainty and insecurity. People are angry and people also feel very insecure. And indeed, um, you know, a companion piece to what um, LSE will publish today in terms of maximizing business contributions to sustainable development and positive peace, a human security approach, um, which I'll come back to in a moment, is also UNDP's report that is looking at new threats to human security in the Anthropocene. And a very stunning figure that emerged from our research is that the vast majority of people were already signaling a deep feeling of insecurity preceding the pandemic, and this has been amplified significantly by the pandemic further. This is, oddly enough, at a moment in time when we are wealthier than ever in human history, at least speaking in monetary terms. We have more science, more infrastructure, more education. We actually have a greater feeling of insecurity than perhaps for the last 60 to 70 years. And I'm thinking here of the immense disruption of the Second World War. So it is a moment in which really human security is under threat. And it is something that I think um, is beginning to lead to a convergence in the way we are not only trying to understand what is happening to us and what it is that we are doing to our planet, but also where in uh, the way that we move forward from here, are we able to address these challenges? Now we're able to do so collectively, whether as communities, as nations, or indeed as a global family of nations or, or people across the planet. And that sense of being um, feeling insecure of being under threat, I think does also take us beyond the realm of incrementalism. So much of what we have done over the last, uh, let's say the post-war era, has been to perfect a kind of economic system that has increasingly delivered wealth, but, um, and material wealth in particular, but has also created two fundamental challenges that I think people are feeling very much today. One is that pervasive sense of inequality injustice, unfairness. At a higher level of wealth, collectively, we have the largest number of people ever feeling, in fact, that things are not going in the right direction. There is an inbuilt sense of unfairness, inequality, 
And that in part explains why we then have these explosions. For instance, in Chile, the, the final trigger in the sense of many of the social upheavals that followed over the last two years there were in fact triggered by the increase of a ticket for public transport. Mm -hmm. We see in Kazakhstan right now, another example where acting on a distorting phenomenon in our economies, i.e. fossil fuel subsidies, is a trigger for um, releasing a great deal of frustration and anger in people. And, you know, the Gilets Jaunes in Paris was another illustration. It's just a, an irony that in trying to act on something that is a fundamental threat to the future of humanity, we are unleashing or at least uncovering um, these tensions and frustrations that have been building up in our societies. And as I said at the beginning, this is not a matter of whether you are developed country or a developing country. It is in fact something that has to do with the core of our governance systems, our institutions, and the perception of citizens as to whether the directions which we're going are the right ones. So in many ways, you would say and argue that this is a moment where we need all hands on deck. And yet, if you look at what is happening within our societies, and indeed, as you also alluded to, I work within the United Nations, the in a sense, epitome of that sense that we are a multilateral community that needs to act in unison and together. The reality is that on many fronts, we're actually falling apart at the very moment when we need to be uh, aligned, when we need to join hands and forces and be able to work across the different stakeholders, be they citizens, be they government, be they the private sector and business. So, in um, addressing this issue, I want to home in a little bit on that business dimension because it was also the focus of your report on maximizing business contributions at this very moment. And the first thing I want to just preface my remarks with is we have to be careful also when we talk about business. Business can be Amazon. Business can be you know, Elon Musk. Business can be Exxon um, or GM or you know, um, Mercedes-Benz or whoever else. And business can also be the corner shop. And I think it is important that we first of all do understand that there are very different actors within that world of business um, to whom we are addressing ourselves. And the fact of the matter is that even in a highly industrialized country like Japan, over 98% of businesses are in fact small, medium scale enterprises. So I think it is critical in trying to address the role of business that we are conscious of the fact that we are talking literally about the mom and pop corner shop right down to um, corporations that have become dominant players on the global marketplace and sometimes even monopolists. And in that sense, it is important to look at business as a stakeholder in this larger drama that we are facing right now, also from the perspective of how can the incentives and the opportunities be created for business to play its part. And here is a second very important um, fact that I simply want to put up front. There is no way that any of the challenges I've just described and touched on briefly will and can be solved without business. Just the economics, the sheer fact that, you know, in most countries, um, public sector finance accounts for less than 20% of GDP. Most of what happens in our economies happens in the domain of the private sector. It happens in markets. And yet we need to be careful because very often we equate markets to the private sector. And I want to, again, um, preface my remarks by saying I take a slightly different view. Markets are constructs within which business, citizens, and governments as the mandated authority create the rules of the game. 
Um, markets are not by definition simply a matter of supply and demand. That is the extreme neoliberal view that somehow between demand and supply, everything can find an equilibrium. Clearly, we live in an age where that assumption no longer holds, and yet it has been a dominant part of the way that we have spent um, transacting public policy debates in our societies for the past 40 to 50 years, almost like a pendulum. At one point, it was the state government that will fix things. Remember the emergence of post-war um, UK and British views, for instance, around the National Health Service. And then we went into the other direction, and the less government, the more private sector, the better the outcomes would be. That neoliberal period that led, yes, to a lot more growth, economic growth and GDP growth, wealth creation, but also an extraordinary amount of inequality, polarization, and the recognition that even if wealth is a very useful thing to have, the way that our economies, our societies, and our relationship as humans with the planet is evolving clearly cannot simply be transacted as a simple market solution. So here we are at the beginning of 2022, faced with all these challenges, and yet business being a central, a key actor in this. Now, in the way that we approach this in UNDP as the development program of the United Nations is that we are essentially called by governments to assist them in figuring out how do you best incentivize and leverage the private sector? How do you also best create the regulatory framework that allows the private sector to successfully operate, but not necessarily to be the only force that shapes the outcome of either economic or social policies? Because clearly, whether you call it a social contract, whether you call it public policy, whether it is the, you know, the ballot box every four years in most countries of the world that will determine what kind of government will be elected, we need to recognize that business is ultimately an interested player, a vital part of the way that our economies and societies can address these issues, but that at the end of the day, business does not operate outside or operates in a vacuum. And here I think is um, perhaps the center of my um, attention this afternoon's ideas, which is that interplay between citizens and business transacted through government and public policy, which ultimately sets the regulatory framework that enables business to operate, but that also regulates business. And let me just take four or five examples quickly to illustrate how it is that we do this. Let's begin with finance. Finance is fundamental. Finance is today a ubiquitous resource. We are the richest generation in human history in monetary terms. Last year, total wealth estimated at $431 trillion. Yet, when you just take a look and take a figure that I just saw this morning, um, GDP. The GDP of the United States is the equivalent of that of the collective sum of 170 countries in the world today. If you just take the United States, China, Japan, and Germany, that's half of the world's GDP. Now, as the development program of the United Nations, you won't be surprised if I immediately home in on this and say, well, this is one indication of where we are heading for trouble. You cannot live with seven, soon eight, nine billion people in this world and have, first of all, that kind of inequality across the globe. But this is replicated also by inequality within our own societies, as we have all felt very acutely recently. It is not business's role to necessarily address the issue of inequality, but business is a player in this economy that produces extraordinary wealth 
but also extraordinary inequality. And yet we need finance more than ever to address issues such as the pandemic, be it through temporary basic incomes, social welfare programs, the vaccination and, um, and economic stimulus packages. But we also need extraordinary amounts of investment as a global community to not only deal with the pandemic, but for instance, to address the decarbonization of our economies. We are with the 1.5 degree target now on a life support system, as the Secretary General called it, at Glasgow. We are that close to missing the opportunity to helping the world to even retain the possibility of avoiding global warming beyond 1.5 degrees. The amount of investment that is needed across the world makes a fundamental um, role for the financial sector. Our financial system in the way it functions right now, left purely to a demand and supply and risk assessment matrix, will take its money where it can make the safest and fastest return. And yet the asymmetry in our global economy is that where we need the money the most, it is least likely to go as a result of just demand and supply. So this is why we have a global climate convention. This is why we continue to struggle with this notion of how can public finance overcome the inequity and unfairness of expecting those who have contributed the least to global warming to now face an extraordinary and disproportionate burden in decarbonizing their economies. We need to act collectively. The financial sector is crucial. Mark Carney, as many of you will know, played a very significant role in the lead up to Glasgow to bring the financial sector to the table to acknowledge this responsibility. We are talking about seismic shifts here in our financial system. And in UNDP, what we have tried to do is, is to help countries now to look at how they can leverage financial markets in order to mobilize the kind of financing for these transitions. We began two years ago to develop SDG impact, norms and standards for the way that countries can raise bonds on financial markets or also in the equity sector. Because in the way that we are able to mobilize this capital will complement public finance and some of the very limited um, development aid and climate change finance that is being made available through public sources. No country will succeed in addressing the climate change challenge without having massive private sector investment and business engagement here. The energy transition being just the simplest example. Let me take you to um, another area, insurance, for instance. Um, over a number of years, I've been co-chairing the Insurance Development Forum, which brings insurance companies and international organizations together to look at how can we um, leverage the effectiveness of insurance to reach many of those who so far have been completely excluded from the ability of insuring themselves. The notion of climate change and risk insurance, whether at national and sovereign level or really at the level of farmers, of households, um, the ability to overcome the lacking presence of a national health service like the UK has in many African societies and economies right now points to the need for microinsurance. People are expending a proportionately very high level of their income on precisely trying to manage health risks in their family. Using um, a partnership between the insurance world with you know, their actuary um, uh, expertise the algorithms that they can bring to assessing risk and then being able to extend microinsurance schemes in the health sector is one way in which we can close this extraordinary gap we face. Again, what we need here is regulations, incentives, policies that allow an insurance sector to expand into constituencies, markets, whether they are jurisdictions or, or clientels that traditionally would simply not have been there. 
And here is another interesting link, digitalization, technology, going back to finance. Um, just 10 years ago, billions of people had no ability to participate in this financial system on which our economy is run. They had no collateral, they had no address, they simply didn't exist for the financial system. Along came digital, along came uh, the ability for people to be able to transact on their smartphones, to develop an identity, a credit record. And today we have literally whole economies in which people are transacting in an inclusive finance paradigm that would have been unthinkable just 10 years ago. This is extremely important also from a gender perspective. Financial inclusion and women being able to access small loans, as happens now in Kenya, for example, in the morning on your smartphone to buy the produce from the wholesaler, to take it and sell it and repay that loan in the evening is fundamentally transformative. This is where business, technology, platforms have been absolutely extraordinary. But interesting enough, the story, particularly of um, inclusive finance and digital in a country like Kenya had a lot to do with the fact that the central bank allowed this to happen mm -hmm. for the very reason that inclusive finance was something that they wanted to promote. And so yet another example of whether it is renewable energy transitions, decarbonization, access to finance, insurance services, and the strength that the insurance sector can bring to a development conundrum, or indeed digital technology and inclusive finance, they all illustrate how it is that we are trying to create the conditions where mm -hmm. technology, the private sector and the market are not only at the service of the entrepreneur, which they legitimately should be, but also at the service of society. So let me um, come to the close of, of these introductory remarks by perhaps um, raising something that I think is fundamental to understanding the moment in time in which we find ourselves, but also to avoid the oversimplification and uh, sometimes incrementalism that accompanies these discussions. Vinush, I think you and, and all of our listeners will know we do live in these troubled times, but they're not hopeless times. But what happens next will define whether we become victims of our own success as a human species, or whether we actually evolve the systems that allow us to um, live together on this planet with eight, nine billion people, to have economies in which inequality does not tear us apart, and sustainability does not become the nail in the coffin of a 21st century, highly sophisticated technological and financial economy. And that means systemic shifts are called for. And in the way that we look at how our economy functions at the moment, we need to now confront some very serious debates. Even in the United States, when we look at decarbonization, why is it such a sticky issue? Well, because there are many vested interests. The private sector has interests that are very much rooted in the legacy economy, which explains why in the United States alone, still more than 20 billion US dollars are expended in fossil fuel subsidies right now. Are we surprised that people hold on to this? And the simple answer is not simply you know, remove the fossil fuel subsidies. Many governments have learned that that produces very violent reactions. But as UNDP, we are absolutely focused on the need that you know, fossil fuel subsidies are, economically speaking, very inefficient from a distributional and equity point of view, inefficient. And they actually perversely set our economies on a slower path to decarbonization. So we have to look at smarter ways in which we use the, the uh, regulatory and public policy levers in order to shift 
for instance, a fiscal and subsidy policy regime that goes directly in the face of what we're actually all agreed we need to achieve, which is moving away from fossil fuel dependency. About a decade ago, in fact, in the United States, the subsidies amounted to more to the oil and gas companies than the entire tax revenue generated from the oil and gas industry. It, it just gives you a sense of you know, the stickiness of what we're dealing with here. But let me also turn to another example. Um, and this was something that I learned um, through Professor Charles Buntra and his team when I was at the Oxford Martin School. And he initiated at that time in Oxford a research program on affordable medicines and um, let's say notions of understanding why is it that so many medicines are actually not being developed because they simply are not economically viable. In today's pharmaceutical research world, five to 10 companies dominate research of new medicines. And it takes a billion dollars or more to develop a new medicine. It happens in a highly competitive environment. So companies begin to reduce the scope on what they're actually going to invest in research so much that significant groups in our societies the elderly, the young, particular diseases, also developing country-specific diseases that are not likely to yield high returns are simply taken out of the research agenda with the perverse effect that um, we're actually having an economy centered around intellectual property rights, driving a kind of research agenda that is almost perverse. And part of his research was to look at, is there a pre-competitive um, research economy that we can foster where companies collectively invest, and then you introduce at a certain stage, perhaps a competitive element that makes the best of business um, in being able to take a particular cure to market. And so the notion of intellectual property rights is another interesting illustration. It is in some respects, one of the great inventions uh, that came out of you know, market economies, capitalism emerging, but it has also become increasing in some areas actually an impediment to our economies functioning in a way that we know is essential to be able to move forward. So these are just two examples of the, the kind of systemic rethink that we need in order to be able to address the drivers of the kinds of disruptions and uh, uncertainties and insecurities that I began speaking about at the beginning. We have to create an environment in which business can succeed and thrive, but also in which business can contribute to what ultimately our human existence is all about. Um, the ability as individuals to fulfill our aspirations, to live in harmony with one another, not to live in societies riven by inequality and certainly not in a moment where the current consumption patterns of this generation are literally protruding options and choices of the next generation. And that goes not only for climate change and carbon emissions, just look at agriculture and our food systems. Over a third of everything we produce right now in this highly dynamic agricultural economy of ours, the global market food place, is never consumed. Over a third of all food products are wasted, either because they're lost between farm and market, or simply because we throw away that yogurt, or we throw away those eggs, or we throw away vast quantities of food in our restaurant and supermarket systems, because the expiry date has been reached. It is an illustration of um, almost an element of insanity in the way that we allow our economies to continue to function. And therefore, in the way that business can contribute to addressing these issues is as much dependent on leadership in business, 
on responsibility and accountability as it is also on the rules of the game. Because for many businesses to do the right thing would be a lot easier if they didn't have to deal with competitors who simply don't care. And that is why the role of the state and the market of regulation and of business leadership are as much a product of institutions and of entrepreneurial ingenuity as they are also an expression of where citizens believe a society should aim to develop itself into the future. Thank you so much and back to you. Thank you so much, Akim. That was a wonderful, a wonderful tour de force on a whole range of important issues. I wanted to ask you just a few questions before we open it up to the audience. You, you highlighted three examples uh, from very different countries where the same issue constrained the ability to do sensible policies for the environment. You mentioned Chile, Kazakhstan, and France, all of which tried to deal with you know, subsidies to transport, which they were trying to phase out for good environmental reasons. But in all three very different countries, the political backlash essentially against the elite and about inequality. And how can you ask us to pay these additional costs when there's so much injustice in our economy? You have the same issue in Chile, Kazakhstan, France. Um, do you think that addressing some of these fundamental issues of equity and justice has become a precondition for making progress on some of these climate-related environmental issues? Absolutely. I think if you go back to um, the years 2018, 2019, you know, we had many of these um, eruptions happening across the world. There were demonstrations, there were political tensions, there was political polarization. Remember the United States in terms of its political spectrum, look at Europe, um, Asia, Latin America. And I think the common thread in all of this uh, goes back to what um, I alluded to in terms of your book. There is a social contract. You know, we, we, we do as citizens um, confer upon our governments a degree of authority to try and regulate the way we, we live with each other and the rules of the game for business and uh, indeed of how markets should work. And I think what we, um, the, the wrong conclusion to draw from those three examples is that we just need to go on with our fossil fuel economy because pollution is the price we pay for peace. No, it's not at all. In fact, continuing with that pollution will amplify the contradictions, the tensions and the frustrations and ultimately the price we pay for not acting on climate change, which will make many things worse for people. The problem is that when these policies are taken, they are taken as very short term and singular policies. So we are trying to address um, fossil fuel subsidies, for example, or correcting the distortions in our energy markets, but we end up punishing the people who actually feel that they are neither the ones principally responsible for the problem, nor secondly, are they the ones that should be made to pay for it disproportionately. So mm -hmm. the ticket for a, um, a public transport journey in Chile was the trigger because it, it basically said to people, look, we're going to let industry, we're going to let the elites essentially continue to you know, live as they are, but you, citizen, will now pay more because we need to address this issue of um, fossil fuel um, price subsidies. The same was with the Gilets Jaunes in Paris. I think many of those who put on those yellow vests would not argue against the reality of climate change. What they were saying is that the way you're addressing this is deeply unfair and we've had enough. 
And, you know, one can extrapolate that into many different contexts. But I think in the way that we address something like a distorted energy or fossil fuel market is inextricably linked to where society feels it is, you know, having a social contract function or not. And that is why I also want to make that link again to the sustainable development goals and the 2030 agenda, because it was in some ways an extraordinary articulation of precisely the understanding that the time where you could deal with development choices in sort of single um, sector responses is over. We live on the boundaries of what our planet can take and we have reached the boundaries of what our societies are willing to tolerate when it comes to inequality or sustainability. So if you want to change the trajectory, you have to take systemic approaches. You have to recognize that pulling on this lever will immediately affect lots of other levers in our economy and society. And that is a degree of complexity and sophistication that clearly we're all struggling with in dealing, not just in narrow economic policy terms, but actually in our political arenas uh, and in our policy options that are before us. Completely agree. Can, you, you talked a lot about markets, not just being an economic construct, but really a political and a social construct and something over which citizens should have a say about how business operates in markets. Um, one of the one of the current dilemmas is that a lot of the business activity around environmental, social, and governance issues around the SDGs is voluntary. And we have some good corporate citizens who are taking leadership. Uh, some of these examples are highlighted in the LSE report, have been highlighted by UNDP. Uh, and that's a good thing. One doesn't want to um, be critical of that at all. But as you say, the 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 business sector is very large. It is most of the economy. Um, and many, many, the vast majority of business uh, operates under the radar screen of both in terms of it not having global reputations they have to protect, not being listed and having shareholders or investors they have to respond to, um, and are therefore able to escape scrutiny around their role vis-a-vis -vis the SDGs and environmental and social indicators. Are, are, you, are you essentially arguing that the voluntary approach uh, is inadequate and that we need to change the rules of the game fundamentally for business? Let me be very clear. Not everything is a matter of regulation, but most things ultimately are not dependent only on voluntary approaches. I think we have to be very clear that um, you know, there comes a time when doing the right thing is not an option. It's, uh, um, it's an imperative and it is also an obligation. You know, just to take you back a few hundred years, we used to have a market for slavery. In fact, we still have human trafficking happening in our times today. It may be a legal or it may be an illegal market, but, you know, slavery was a legal uh, perversely so market at one point yeah. and I found it intriguing listening at one point to you know a Hollywood reproduction of the debates that took place in the House of Commons of the United Kingdom when the decision had to be made to essentially declare the trading in humans illegal yeah. and um, the similarities to some of the language and the rationales for why one should 
not do this too quickly and one has to take into account you know, the economic implications are almost identical to some of the arguments that are being invoked today on acting on decarbonization of our economies. Mm. Now, I don't want to diminish or in any way equate one or the other because that would be a, a totally unintended um, message. But what I'm trying to point to is that in the way that we um, you know, approach certain issues over time do require us to either because out of necessity or out of simply it is wrong and this is the right thing to do may also require you know either norms and standards that become binding to actors in a certain sector or indeed becomes the law of the land i think decarbonization right now um, is at a point in time where we want to maintain the optimal um, entrepreneurial um, flexibility and opportunity to act on this so you can choose to do it this way, you may choose to do it that way, you may come up with a new technology. But what cannot be uh, really subject to voluntarism anymore is that you need to decarbonize your manufacturing, your supply chains, your ecological footprint. And therefore, I think that interplay between markets and regulation, laws and voluntary actions um, becomes, in a sense, a sharper uh, dividing line. Clearly, voluntary actions very often are incubation phases. People are experimenting and society is not ready to act and we may not have the answer. Part of our problem has been for a long time that we didn't know how to keep the lights on without using oil, gas and coal. Well, that excuse is long gone and yet we still seem to be living with the tail of that argument in our economies today. So I would argue very strongly that Voluntary codes of conduct are welcome, but just as we also recognize in the financial world and in the accountability towards our societies, you know, greenwashing, bluewashing is increasingly unacceptable. So if you want to raise money on the capital markets and people want to invest in SDG bonds or in green bonds, then we have to agree on what is a green bond and what is not a green bond, the taxonomy uh, the norms and standards. And so UNDPs attempt to try and provide to governments um, the norms and standards that would allow them to go to capital markets as we did together with Mexico, as we did with the New Development Bank, um, to raise hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of an SDG bond are premised on a very transparent set of rules and yardsticks. Now they are not passed by law yet. So there are degrees by which you can create transparency, accountability, obligation, without necessarily passing an act of parliament. But sometimes you will require that as well. Okay, I'm gonna to turn to some of the questions from the audience, of which we have very many. Uh, I'm gonna start with Lee Edwards from the Department of Media and Communications at LSC, who says, businesses of all sizes have long enjoyed status as a privileged actor in markets to which citizens and governments frequently acquiesce. In a development context, they retain that role given that they're working in a context of geopolitical inequalities with vulnerable and marginalized populations. How do we guard against business performing collaboration and compromise as a means of pursuing self-interest that ultimately protects their position and wealth and thereby reinforces systemic inequalities rather than facilitating change? Well, I think we, we have learned a lot by the way we have tried to approach this over you know decades by now and i i would begin with something that may seem counterintuitive but it's actually the public citizen scrutiny is perhaps you know in in, in a corporate boardroom it's referred to as reputational risk 
in my view, it is um, creating accountability and transparency. And I think what has driven more often than not significant shifts in the way that business conducts its business as business is in fact that scrutiny by society, by citizens, whether it's the license to operate in, in, a, in a metaphorical sense or it is the scandal that you know, drives you out of business. Um, I think we will continue to see that as being a major driver, not least because our ability to monitor and then communicate transgressions or you know, bad conduct has grown exponentially in our world of social networks of digital monitoring and the ability to access data. So don't underestimate the power of citizens to actually counter that um, sometimes not even monopolistic, but simply corporate size ability to um, elude or evade public scrutiny. I think we've also seen in an area that has for the better part of four or five decades eluded even the G7 and um, you know, the larger economies, which is taxation. We have just for the first time a decision in the G20 and ultimately, you know, with 130, 140 countries now signing up, that the kind of tax evasion that, you know, particularly transnational, multinational businesses have um, perfected, and not even illegally. This, this was the way that our global fiscal policy system was functioning, creating the incentive to try and essentially optimize your tax bill by the way that you would play off one jurisdiction against another. So I think that is also an expression of... Um, government's feeling that citizens are increasingly unwilling to accept this. And the fact that Elon Musk doesn't have to pay any taxes is not a criminal act on his part. It's just that the law is such that until and unless he sells a share, he is not liable to pay tax. Mm -hmm. And so it's a perfectly legal, but also increasingly perverse reality in the way that we, we deal with this. And finally, I think governments do need to um, accept a greater responsibility in adapting to the way that our economies function today. I was very interested before, um, a couple of days ago, listening to a, a talk by Azim Azhar, who published um, a book recently called Exponential Gap, in which he looks at how the exponential growth of technology and what it allows us to do in you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly has essentially created an exponential gap between where reality is playing itself out and where our institutions are actually able to keep up with this. We have a linear way in which our tax systems evolve, our public institutions evolve, and yet we have an economy that is leaping into an entirely different age when it comes to the use of data. And just the fact that at the turn of, I think it was probably the century, we suddenly had data companies replace oil and gas and fossil fuel companies as the largest corporations in the world, give you an indication of how quickly the economy has picked up on this and, and adapted to this. But our regulatory institutions to this day, when it comes to Bitcoin, for instance, and, and other phenomena of Uber, uh, being able to operate a taxi service in an African economy where the regulator doesn't even have Uber on their registered company uh, register. So this is the world in which we, I think, also need to quickly get public institutions and governments to, to evolve and adapt. And again, this is actually something that we do a lot with UNDP right now because we ourselves were late in understanding quite how profound the shift and impact of digitalization would be on virtually every aspect of, of an economy's and country's development. So our digital readiness assessments, our digital capacity building is now focused not on just the last mile of fiber optic because that's a great asset, but also on how do you um, 
regulate a digital ecosystem nationally? How do you ensure that it doesn't amplify inequality, but actually reduces inequality? Well, on, a, on exactly on that theme, let me turn to a question from Sergio Novas Tejero, who's a development professional in Cape Verde. And his question is, what can the UN and UNDP do in order to mobilize support and investments from the private sector in small island development states where market size is very small, the cost of doing business, uh, water, electricity, et cetera, are much higher than average. Small island states are among the highest, mo most vulnerable countries in the world and traditional global market solutions of the private sector are not working. And I might just broaden that question out to include low-income countries alongside the small island states who face many of the same constraints and in which UNDP plays a big role. It's an extremely important question and one that actually keeps us awake every day because our commitment as the development program of the United Nations obviously begins with those least able out of their own resources or reality um, being able to address some of these enormous shifts that are happening, be it the, the threat of climate change, be it the emergence of a digital economy, be it the transition towards a decarbonized energy system. And I think the, the reality is um, we are struggling with this. And look at the ridiculous um, discussions around climate finance. Even in Glasgow, uh, years after a commitment was made that actually the world would co-invest, and I use that term very deliberately, because it's not as if the rich world is providing some philanthropic gift to um, a developing country, a small island developing state. These countries already have to divert significant amounts of their national resources to adapt to climate change, to spend more money in trying to give access to energy for their citizens in a world that is clearly moving towards a low carbon future. The ability of the wealthier part of the world to help co-invest in this is something that we are extremely focused on because we need to address two, two phenomena. One is financial markets will not naturally gravitate towards those economies. They don't have the economies of scale or you know, sometimes uh, the risk perception is very high. And so money will, you know, in a global financial investors world, simply seek out the best opportunity. And precisely this group of countries of, you know, low income, small economies, small and developing states are really struggling with this, which is one reason why we began that SDG impact work, why we began investing in norms and standards that would allow a country to go to the financial markets. And by having a very rigorous and transparent um, bond that is linked to economic and developmental outcomes become one way of addressing the skepticism of financial markets. And we believe very much that there is enormous potential, not least because the financial markets themselves are under enormous pressure to go into you know, green investing, into benign investment propositions. More and more institutional investors do not want their money to contribute to problems, but actually help solve problems. So our ability to help countries to go to the financial markets in a more transparent and more rigorous way is a key part of it. Secondly, we need to mobilize more um, public finance and concessional finance. There is no way that these countries can make these leaps forward without having at least some co-investment come from the wealthier societies and in the climate context from those responsible for much of the emissions footprint of the, of the world today. And here, the Global Environment Facility, the Green Climate Fund, and also ODA are critical. And let me say here, I mean, it, it is one of the 
you know, frustrating irony is that at a moment in time when we could allow countries to literally make significant shifts, for instance, in Africa, where, you know, well over 50 to 60% of people don't have access to electricity yet. So you're not dealing with an electricity infrastructure rooted in a fossil fuel age. You actually could make that leap forward happen overnight, create access, affordable access to electricity for the first time for hundreds of millions of people and make Africa the frontier of a decarbonized energy system in the global economy. It doesn't take much imagination to understand how vital this is when you realize that there will be 2 billion people on the African continent by the middle of the century. This is the continent that will define whether we are able to stay within 1.5 degrees or not in the way that it invests in the future. Meanwhile, Europe, the United States, parts of Asia, Latin America will define our ability to stay within 1.5 degrees by their understanding that this is not only an issue of national interest. In fact, the ability of small island developing states, low income countries to quickly leapfrog into a low energy uh, and electricity infrastructure economy is fundamental to the future of every other country as well. And so we are working extremely hard to develop the kinds of investment programs now that derive from these NDCs, these national climate strategies that now have to be translated into investments in the energy sector, the transport sector, agriculture, land use, and at the same time, leverage also technologies. Digital could be an extremely useful accelerator in the way that you can, for instance, make solar a pay-as-you-go electricity supply. We have seen examples of that happening. And similarly, the ability to turn um, the transport sector, not into one that emulates the rest of 20th century transportation economy pathways, but actually leapfrog forward into EV and other means of uh, public transport so that you don't find yourself in the situation where the only way to go forward is to go backward to the 20th century. Absolutely. So I've got a lot of questions around the nature of partnerships between governments and business. I'm going to combine three of them, if I may. Uh, one is from Vlasios Marios Lekas, who's advisor in the permanent mission of Greece to the United Nations in New York. He thanks you for an excellent speech and then asks, what is your, in your opinion, would be the most important partnership that could be created so we're able to handle these difficult times? And similarly, Laura Moulton Ulrich, us, uh, shouldn't pro the private sector be calling out governments as they are leading the world into disaster and demanding government change based on more broad-based citizens' engagement? And Francelino Guterres asks, uh, after the COVID crisis, are global partnerships still effective in advancing the SDGs? Uh, and as the challenges facing the global community become more complex, these global partnerships have gained momentum, but are they are they effective? So really a set of questions around what makes for effective partnerships between the private sector and government, and in your experience, what direction should they take? Thank you, and very, um, very valid questions. I, I perhaps will struggle to say, is there a most important partnership, but um, perhaps the, the, the sector or, or the world that is most um, universally relevant to what happens next is our financial world. So let me, let me pick perhaps the financial sector. Um, 
as I said before, our problem is not a lack of finance. In fact, our world is struggling to um, deploy finance. You would know this extremely well, going back to your days at the Bank of England. So we have this extraordinary asymmetry where a financial system um, has accumulated extraordinary assets, in fact, is holding on to those assets. And if you want to go a little bit more into the political economy of development, it is even harboring assets that are either illegal in the sense of illicit funds or in the reality of how financial markets work today, even Africa parks a significant part of its central bank assets outside of the continent. So yeah. that money then becomes institutionally managed by the financial sector. And it was very interesting when I co-led with Maria Ramos a digital finance panel in the SDGs a couple of years ago. One of the things that we found very interesting is that we need to rediscover that money actually belongs to people. And that money that is then, you know, um, in a sense, put in the custodianship of banks and funds and so on, insurances, pension funds, um, is something that we have to rediscover that we as citizens actually are the owners of those funds. Because otherwise, the corporatization of the financial markets, the pressure under which they operate, increasingly leads to those funds not being deployed where they're needed most. And um, I think we will... We have seen some illustrations of progress around climate change and the commitments that the financial sector has made. But, you know, even some of the loudest and supposedly most progressive financial institutions, when you actually lift uh, the carpet a little bit and look underneath and their balance sheets, while trying to get out of the fossil fuel economy, remain major investors in the fossil fuel economy. And secondly, it is extremely difficult for smaller countries, economies, jurisdictions and nations least developed countries to access those financial markets. In the middle of the pandemic, it was very interesting when you looked at the ability of a country to raise money on the financial markets, while the United States was paying somewhere between, I think, 0.2 and 0.4% in terms of interest rate for a bond. Even a country like Kenya, which is, you know, in financial terms and economic policy terms, a successful African economy in many ways, was paying between 12 to 15% to borrow money in the midst of a pandemic. So here is an extraordinary injustice in the way that finance is um, at least accessible. Now, obviously banks have reasons why they you know, charge higher interest rates in riskier environments. The question again becomes, can we as governments and regulators and you know, financial system regulators create conditions that can help here? And in, you know, we had an interesting example with the IMF, the SDR, $650 billion of special drawing rights being issued to countries by the IMF last year. Um, most of those funds went to a small group of countries, the largest shareholders, and therefore, again, in an extremely important and timely injection of uh, liquidity into our financial system, we have been unable to overcome the inequity of the way our global economy functions today. And that has been, I think, a great missed opportunity because it is through the SDRs that would have not really an impact on either the members and shareholders of the IMF. Um, I won't go into the details right now. You know them well and many others might do as well. But it was essentially money that could be injected as a stimulus, particularly in combining a pandemic response, perhaps with a massive investment also in climate finance, particularly to the countries that are most vulnerable. 
And, you know, to this day, we're actually struggling to even get 100 um, yeah. billion out of this reallocated. And, you know, even the UK, I have to say, surprisingly, when they were going to use some of their climate finance and SDRs and, and trade them off against each other in terms of viewing their ability to add to this. Mm -hmm. Here, industrialized countries and, you know, the G20, let us also be very clear, 80% almost of our global economy uh, is made up by the G20 countries. I have been attending on behalf of the United Nations, the G20 uh, finance ministers summits and central bank governor summits for four years now. While there is progress in acknowledgement, it is extraordinarily slow in actually following through on actions that will address this asymmetry in our financial system. So all this to yeah. say, that is a sector that is critical. Should governments call out business? Absolutely, but look how scared governments are of business. This is where we as citizens also have to assume a more proactive role. Governments are elected officials. Uh, in many countries, you know, business donates, business finances politics. That, um, that mixture between public accountability and um, you know, private sector support for certain policies has um, challenged our societies and our democratic systems time and again. I think we live in an era where transparency and accountability are crucial. I think citizens need to be far more engaged here and then governments will have the ability to call out business also. But um, it's, um, it's something that is easily said and yet in the reality, I think we often see precisely the opposite happening. And in terms of sector partnerships, I think much of what I said in, in my initial remarks very much acknowledges the centrality of the private sector. The SDGs are not achievable without the private sector, um, whether it is as a financier, as a job creator, as a technology innovator, diffuser, um, an ability to scale up um, solutions they are central, whether it is in you know, public service provision, whether it is in um, the uh, skill building and training, in creating markets uh, for exports, etc. But I think conversely, and this has been an interesting part of the SDGs and the 2030 agenda, more and more actors in the private sector actually realize that the future of their business is also conditional upon the SDGs actually being achieved. I think one of the surprising developments early on with the sustainable development goals when much of the world was sort of saying, well, very easy to agree on these things. The UN agrees on these goals and you know, then there are targets and indicators and does anybody pay attention to it? It was the financial sector that actually began to work with the SDGs far more proactively than I had anticipated and I think many had. Because at its core, what the SDGs are actually providing us with is first of all, an agenda in which we are all agreed what matters. And secondly, it is perhaps the single tool that we have available right now as a global family of nations that allows us to de-risk the future. And that is something that financial markets and financial players understand extremely well. And in that sense, I think the SDGs are very much dependent on the key players in the private sector, whether it is the small scale entrepreneur or it is the global corporation to be engaged in partnerships. I mentioned a few around digital, around uh, insurance, around uh, climate finance, but also for business and markets to appreciate and to understand how directly relevant the success of the SDGs are to the future of their business 
their clients and their markets. So let me uh, pick up on that point you made about de-risking the future and the role of citizens in politics in creating an environment in which the private sector can participate in that. I've got several questions that are around politics and priority setting, and I'm going to group them together. Shazada Ahmed asks, uh, how do we how do we strengthen the work UNDP has done on business and human rights so that we start discussing how we give up our privilege in favor of a collective benefit or goal? Mehnaz Mustafavi asks, isn't the social contract so intricately connected to the broad understanding of human security? And how do we go about making this truth the prima facie of how we tackle current and emerging challenges. And then uh, finally, um, from uh, from uh, Su Wei Mint from UNDP in Myanmar, uh, says you've talked about the importance of the interaction between political and economic institutions. In a country like Myanmar, where the political institution isn't in a position to properly function and interact with the market and where the economy is crumbling because of the political crisis, how will, how will we apply this? And it, they're all questions around citizens and politics getting to a place where they create the right incentives for the private sector to address the SDGs, deal with the climate crisis, deal with inequality. Uh, say a, bit about, say a bit, bit about that set of issues, if you could, Okay. Well, let me start with, with um, human rights. Um, you know, for those of you who follow the debates in the United Nations, um, human rights has become very often an issue that is distractive in its divisiveness. And yet, um, if you go back to the core of the Declaration of Human Rights and what it tries to not only codify, but also to, to provide the world with a means by which um, it can hold itself accountable and people can hold actors accountable, I think there are a few today who would argue that the fundamental human rights that were um, articulated in the Declaration of Human Rights are really contestable. I think much of what you have heard and, and what preoccupies and in my mind distracts and often perverts the way in which we are able to work with human rights is in a sense the double standards, the hypocrisy, the selective application, and sometimes the denial that individual human rights do have also the complement of collective rights, um, you know, the, the right to development, social, cultural rights. And I think, you know, the United Nations is unfortunately often associated with the contradictions that these different universes give rise to, but actually, I think it is fulfilling precisely the role that it should be. We are a world of very different cultures, of very different um, political pathways that are chosen. This is not always a matter of democracy versus autocracy. It is, for example, how much inequality is the price you're willing to pay for rapid economic development? And there are very different development policies, pathways and choices that have been made. So I want to articulate without any hesitation that I consider human rights and the Declaration of Human Rights something that is in many ways incontrovertible in terms of where citizens not uh, or irrespective of what culture, what country, what community, what tradition they come from, can in large part identify with. And therefore, I think business needs to embrace also its responsibility that it cannot abdicate its own 
role, responsibility, and accountability for upholding those human rights. We can debate a lot about what is national legislation and national law. If you are a globally acting corporation, you cannot hide behind the weakest national legislative link in order to justify the disregard for fundamentals. And I have to say, here I also count very much on business leaders because we have seen, and in fact, UNDP conducts regular trainings together with the High Commissioner of Human Rights for business, particularly in Asia, where we are regularly bringing together business and human rights training uh, seminars and, and uh, workshops precisely to allow business to come to grips with how to transact their human rights agenda within their normal course of business. So I think there is, uh, in my mind, very little contradiction here, but it is a very contradictory context in which we are operating and we must not allow that to, to capture us. But I think um, equally in that rights discourse belongs that broader understanding that the right to development could mean to literally hundreds of millions of people the ability to survive or not to survive, to thrive or to fail. And that economic inequality <clears throat> becomes, in a sense, a pervasive force of compromising fundamental human rights as well. Just like um, the notion of fundamental environmental rights have emerged increasingly, obviously in the latter part of the 20th century and now particularly in the 21st century, because the collective impact of human actions on the environment and their implications on individual, but also intergenerational fundamental rights have become an issue of frontier jurisprudence um, in which we have to write entirely new laws and jurisprudence in order to be able to deal with that. And we are seeing young people take these issues to courts all over the world. To social contracts and human security, I think they are in a sense twin sisters and twin brothers of an understanding that when we talk about the way that societies envisage living with one another, the, the rights they confer upon government to, to legislate, to police, to provide services and so on, inextricably links to our understanding of what makes us less insecure, what creates human security. And the terminology of human security that remains in some parts of um, our international community still subject to debate, I think does, however, very clearly articulate um, the original notion of expanding that understanding of what security is all about. Because until um, about 25 years ago, uh, when um, Ogata and Sen first uh, brought forward thinking that led us to say, look, Human security cannot only be defined in terms of geographical and military and geopolitical um, notions of security. Um, in fact, we need to interpret human security in a far more applied social community and societal context, because that allows us to understand what will put human security at risk. I think has led us today to the reports that you are putting out, that UNDP will be putting out on the new threats to human security in the Anthropocene that allows us to use human security as a way to also reshape and redefine the, um, the content of the social contract that will lead us forward. And to um, the comment on the political and economic institutions and the reality of Myanmar, um, Sue is absolutely right. I and mean, what you witness in Myanmar is the simultaneous breakdown of two fundamentally important elements of 
a functional society. One is the political and democratic process that the citizens of Myanmar had chosen to engage in and move forward when permitted to do so. And that has been brutally stopped by what has happened in Myanmar as a result of the military reassuming all reins of political power. And this is a tragedy. And from the Secretary General to the international community, and I want to put myself on record also, it is not only a tragedy, it is one that the international community should never accept. And yet we know so often that in history, we find ourselves powerless in the face of sometimes very brutal and um, very autocratic regimes that assume control over their country. History also teaches us that it will never last forever. The question is, can we do something about how we address this in the short term? Um, the other fundamental process it has given rise to is an extreme form of economic implosion. We see poverty rates going up. We see um, COVID infection rates going up. We see the collapse of business. And therefore, Myanmar is going through an absolutely traumatic moment of not only having lost this um, fledgling democracy and new social contract it was constructing for itself, but also being thrown back by a decade in terms of poverty rates, economic implosion, vulnerabilities to, to the pandemic. And, um, you know, I think in many ways, this regrettable phenomenon that so often we, um, we almost can't cope with anymore. I try to appeal just before Christmas for the world to not forget Yemen. Yemen is another illustration of a country in an implosion for over seven, eight years now, with an extraordinary impact of a, a standoff that is both national and regional. And in the midst of this, losing 10 to 20 years of its development progress and the number of people now being victims. This was our latest report in, in November, December, that actually victims are dying from this conflict and not as a direct result of uh, combat, but of the consequences of this implosion that is happening in Yemen. And for us as an international community, we are both politically challenged in how to respond to this, and that is to some extent in the dynamics of the divisions of our world. What is inexcusable is that the world actually turns away from the people affected by these crises through no fault of their own. And as we speak, the World Food Programme is yet again having to cut its rations for Yemen in half. And we as a United Nations system are unable to step forward in doing what we are perfectly capable of doing and can afford to do, which is to save lives and livelihoods in the midst of, of this tragedy. So Myanmar, Yemen, um, Syria, we could go on. Yeah, absolutely. Let me... Um... Let me turn to a question from Nina Pronin, uh, who's a development professional in the US, and, uh, and I'm going to build on her question as well. She asked, in light of the urgent and extreme threats posed by COVID and crises like the climate emergency, how can a focus on human security and its application give these challenges the priority and the approach they need, especially if we're going to respond in a more preventative, people-centered way? Now, I want to just build on Nina's question um, I'm sure I can 
like me, you've been incredibly frustrated at the global response to COVID and the lack of vaccine access and the kind of madness of trying to fight a global pandemic from national silos. And yet countries, particularly the wealthy countries, spent huge amounts to support both vaccination and their economies in this crisis. And the amount we were able to mobilize for poor countries uh, has been grossly inadequate. And we see the same phenomenon on climate. Uh, you know, we know that investing globally on adaptation and mitigation is much more cost-effective than trying to deliver climate progress at the national level. So what is your, what is your view as to why, even though the numbers are so compelling and COVID is, couldn't be a better example of a, of a problem that best is best solved through global collective investment. And yet we were unable to, to persuade national governments to do that. What is the lesson you draw from that? Those, I think those two experiences, which illustrate the point that Nina's making of, we haven't been able to make, uh, to make the case for collective investment in, in these global goods very effectively. And, and what should we be doing differently? Very powerful questions, Minoshin. Um, I think the the answers are never as satisfying as the questions are <laughs> to ask, um, because we live in a in a in a contradictory reality. I think we have to acknowledge it. I mean, you know, we 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 saw in the pandemic um, two things happening at the same time, and I think we should acknowledge them because in in some ways it's it's it gives us reason to be also hopeful and, and optimistic. We saw on the one hand, um, the reflex, particularly of national governments in terms of uh, looking after their own. And um, to some extent, understandable from the public pressure that was clearly articulating itself, you know, why have these people got vaccines? Why don't we have vaccines? All of these kinds of debates that were happening. Yet at the same time, we also saw within our societies extraordinary acts of solidarity. Mm. I often say what I saw in New York City, which is a city that in a sense very often displays this um, you know, individualism and everybody for themselves and in a rush and you know, how do I make the next buck? There were scenes in this city that were extraordinary in terms of neighborhood um, solidarity, in terms of people coming together and supporting one another. Um, 20,000 nurses and doctors flying in when the pandemic was exploding in New York and it was really on the verge of losing its ability to treat people voluntarily um, getting in vehicles and cars and, and coming here to offer their service, professionals, for free. So we are dealing with a, a mix of both. And I think what um, in part will determine, I think, our ability to not surrender to the short-termism and to the uh, reflex of let's only look after ourselves before we look after our others is going to be two things. One, trust in institutions. I mean, the countries that fared most effectively with COVID were actually the countries where the greatest trust existed between citizens and their governments. Mm. Uh, because that allowed countries to effectively respond and act on what needed to be done, but also on retaining the confidence that even if these were extreme moments, uh, citizens were willing to go along with it. And where the trust was the lowest, um, you saw the greatest reaction. It simply fired that already nascent or uh, simmering sense of distrust vis-a-vis -vis authority, 
the debates about freedoms. Um, and so the symptomatic uh, nature of the COVID response debate overtook the reality and rationality. And here comes the second part. I mean, we are constantly and frequently talking about, you know, lack of confidence in multilateralism, the crisis of multilateralism. Let me turn it on its head. Can somebody explain to me how you're going to deal with a pandemic or climate change or cybercrime or migration if you don't have multilateral action, um, multilaterally agreed policies, multilateral institutions that can mediate, intermediate and create accountability from one country to another in actually responding to these issues. Clearly we can't. And therefore I think we are in part um, when it comes to multilateralism and the United Nations, you know, in a sense being the, let's say, most directly associated institutional articulation of this with, in a sense, something that has to do more with the conflict and the tensions between the members within these multilateral institutions. If you look at the frustrations, the contradictions, the um, sometimes hypocrisy, double standards that are being applied, in our multilateral world, you can trace them directly back to individual member states, political leaders that are either in conflict with another country, that are in a very tense relationship, and that are abusing our multilateral institutions. The tragedy of multilateralism in the 21st century is that it has become a product of collective neglect, of abuse, and of manipulation. And that, in part, rightly so, creates in citizens a sense, well, then what is the United Nations doing if it cannot deal with those contradictions? Well, yeah. I hope that people will um, continue to see that what are contradictions, what is sometimes double standards, is not the whole story. In fact, in the midst of this pandemic, it is the United Nations with its own constraints and failures sometimes to deliver that actually has been at the forefront of addressing vaccine inequity. It was the Secretary General that drew the attention when the international financial institutions and the G20 was very slow in acting, that financing was a crucial part of the pandemic response. And you could not only look after yourself because you would ultimately create a global economic crisis, just like the lack of vaccine equity is precisely the reason why we are here in the year 2022 in January and reliving this nightmare of not being able to deal with this, with this uh, virus. So I actually believe that multilateralism will and um, continues to be more central to what happens next in our world than in the last 75 years of its modern era history. But it will have to shed, first of all, a great deal of some of the baggage that it carries from the past. And secondly, member states and citizens will have to rediscover a passion for actually defending the core of what multilateralism is about. Mm -hmm. No, very well said. I mean, we are uh, in an era in which uh, many nations use the multilateral system for domestic political reasons, for other purposes, uh, and have lost sight of the wider collective purposes. Let me um, let me kind of draw it to a close by asking you. Um, so it's uh, it's January 2022. It's common for people to make New Year's resolutions. Um, there are you've, you've pointed to the key role of 
of citizens holding governments to account on all of these issues to get a better global response. Um, so uh, what would your New Year's resolution be and what would you encourage citizens around the world to have as part of their New Year's resolution that might mean that 2022 might be the year in which we see uh, better partnerships between business and governments, a better collective response to challenges like the pandemic and the climate emergency. What should we all be putting on our to-do list for 2022? Well, I, I always begin by saying um, when it comes to questions like this, begin with yourself. You know, the power of one is something that um, is often uh, not taken seriously or is minimized or diminished. And I actually very much live here with the inspiration of, you know, whether it's people like Nelson Mandela or this Mahatma Gandhi or indeed somebody who I learned so much from, Wangari Matai. Um, she, you know, began her life as a young Kenyan girl who uh, got the opportunity to, you know, pursue a course of education and then began to discover the power of her actions to inspire others. And she started to plant trees. People laughed about it. And um, yet through the action of planting a tree, she began to address really an entire complex set of issues in Kenyan society and ultimately globally and began, became a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And, uh, you know, not all of us will be Nobel Peace Prize winners, but what the story of Wangari and so many others illustrates is that actually, if you care about something, you can begin to change uh, what happens next. And, you know, movements are built from individuals who get together with other individuals, and then ideas begin to infect how communities respond and react. And so my appeal would be, as you enter 2022, Find that issue that you're passionate about. Don't over-intellectualize. Um, you know, sometimes with the SDGs, people say, oh, I can't deal with it, it's too complex. No, mm -hmm. find one of the SDGs that really makes you get up in the morning and think, actually, that really matters to me. And then start doing something about it. And very quickly, you will see how you become part of a, of a systemic force. And so I would end Minush by saying, we, um, and I certainly you know, gave plenty of reason to, to look into the next 12 months with a degree of, uh, let's say, realism, pragmatism, but also um, you know, not necessarily a very optimistic outlook. But um, I actually am a deeply optimistic person. And I think if you look at what we are achieving, whether it is on the climate change front or on the pandemic, yes, we take too long. We betray too many people's trust uh, by being so slow. But ultimately, we are changing what happens next in the world. And, you know, Glasgow was another two steps forward, one step back. But actually, if you look at what's happening, you know, we are moving forward on the challenge of climate change and decarbonization. We will in 2022 hopefully get vaccines to all the people who want to be vaccinated and hopefully convince those who remain skeptical or don't want to be vaccinated that they have become a very direct risk to, to their communities, their families. And in that sense, let individuals not be disempowered and made to feel unable to influence what happens next. Because in this highly technological world, globalization, digitalization, financial markets, climate science, everything seems to tell me as an individual 
this is all too complicated for you. No, it isn't. And I end by just, um, if I may, referring to Frankie the Dino. I don't know if you saw uh, Frankie step on the world stage when we uh, um, put the dinosaur in the General Assembly Hall and allowed it to speak to the world about fossil fuel subsidies. Classic example, so complicated. Um, how, what can I do about it? And yet what we wanted to achieve is just to use Frankie as a way of reaching every single citizen and say to them, actually, it's not that complicated and you can do something about it. So don't give up. And that I think has to be the motto for 2022. And thank okay. you so much Manoj, for having me on the, the lecture circuit today of LSE. It's been a great privilege. Oh, well, thank you, Akim. Thank you for ending on a hopeful note uh, that also is empowering, I think, for everyone in the audience and gives everyone a sense that they can do something and that, uh, you know, more power to everyone's elbow. And if everyone does something, it all adds up to something very, very large. So thank you so much for covering such a broad array of issues, for speaking to a global audience that we will share more widely uh, as a podcast after this event, and for also highlighting some of the important messages in the report that's out today uh, from the LSE on human security and the role of business. Uh, and we look forward to further collaborations with the UN uh, over the years ahead. And uh, thank you to everyone in the audience for joining us. And may 2022 be a great year for all of us. I think we, I think we deserve it. So, so uh, given the recent past, thank you again and uh, stay safe and hopefully see you all in person soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.